Good morning to you all. I don't want to stop any conversations from happening. I love this church and I love that we know how to chat. If you've got a Bible, turn with me to John 11. Over the past several months, I've had a really strong sense that the Lord would have us look at the subject of grief. And so, after starting with the overview last week, and over the next couple of weeks, we'll be doing our best to tackle this really difficult and hugely sensitive subject. Now, before I go any further, I can't speak about a topic such as this without being acutely aware of the fact that there will be some of you here who are dealing with grief, who are actively grieving, and who may be feeling incredibly raw. And secondly, I would like, I would also want to encourage us all to take care of ourselves. And if at any point, for any reason, any of this becomes too much, please don't feel you have to sit through it in some stoic manner. Feel free to go out in the foyer or even outside and embrace the sunshine and grab some coffee and do whatever it is that you need to do to take care of yourselves. Hopefully it will be recorded and so you can always come back to listen to it as and when you feel ready to. I'm just going to pray. Come, Holy Spirit, come. Come, Holy Spirit, to our mind as we receive your comfort. Come, Holy Spirit, to our hearts as we receive your peace. Come, Holy Spirit, to our souls as we receive your love, your love that surpasses all understanding, come. So let's take a look at John 11, verse 17 to 37. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in their loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, 
the Son of God, who is to come into the world. After she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. And Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying. I just need a swig of my water, darling. Can you pass me the cup? <laughs> Thank you. Thanks. Grief. Uninvited. Unappreciated. Unwanted. Hated. Feared. Denied, raged against. And yet grief comes into every one of our lives in multiple ways. And it seems no matter what we do or how we feel, we can't control its entrance into our lives. We can't control it and we can't prevent it. We don't want to talk about it. We don't want to have to face it or deal with it. And yet grief relentlessly comes into our lives and into the lives of those we love. The experience is universal. It cuts across gender, race, culture, socioeconomic status and age. And none of us can escape an encounter with this uninvited guest whose name is death. And death isn't something we only encounter at the end of our lives. As we looked at last week, we encounter grief hundreds of times in our lifetime in so many smaller deaths. The loss of a job, the breakdown in relationship, a chronic illness, and the many varied ways by which grief comes into our lives. And so how are we, as the people of God, to think about the many deaths that we must encounter along the way and the resulting process of grieving? How are we to care for ourselves as we grieve? And how are we to care for others as they grieve? And this morning, I want us to explore what some people have called the so-called stages of grief, made famous by Dr. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, her, her book published in 1969 on death and dying. 
Now, these stages, which she herself said that not everyone experiences all of five, were actually originally used to describe not five stages of grief for the bereaved, but the five stages of dying that people go through as they near death. So she wasn't writing about grief after a bereavement, but in the decades since her book first came out, this five stages of dying theory has been used by many to describe the ways in which our emotions can change during the grieving process following a bereavement. Now, however, it is widely acknowledged that talking about stages of grief, especially limiting them to just five, isn't especially helpful, particularly if we take it to mean that we should feel a certain way at a certain time or that our grief will somehow follow a set order. Since people first started talking about the stages of grief theory, we've learned about many other ways of understanding grief. And one of the most important is that there's no right or wrong way to grieve. And grief is different for everyone. Each time that we grieve during our lifetime will also feel different too. Grief is not just one feeling. Have a look at verse 19. Many Jews have come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. What can so easily happen when we apply these five stages of grief is that we begin to worry that we're not doing our grief work properly, even though there's no right or wrong way to feel when we are grieving. Perhaps it's more helpful to think of grief as a journey that will all go on at various points of our lives. And at different points as we journey with grief, we will host different emotions and feelings. But these will come and go and are unlikely to follow any set order. Grief is often a whole host of emotions and feelings that flood our beings, that in trying to make sense of them or pin them down is like trying to hold water trying to hold on to water. We may feel shocked or numb, sad, anxious or agitated, exhausted, relieved, guilty, angry, calm, hopeless, resentful. And these are all maybe not simply stages, but they're many different stages of grief. The most important thing to underline is that each and every one of us grieves in our own way. So it's really important that don't get bogged down in our Western mindset into thinking of grief as merely a linear process and then we're done as if grief was some kind of checklist to work through. That's not what grief looks like. If grief is anything, it's messy and often chaotic. And it's painful enough to grieve without thinking or being told that somehow you didn't follow the right order or you're not doing it right. But what are the faces of grief? Well, death and trauma often initially result in shock and denial. In John 11, verse 21, Martha says to Jesus, Lord, if you had been there, my brother would not have died. Now, we don't know if these words of faith 
or rebuke or just a lack of acceptance that her brother had died. But it's completely normal to keep thinking, keep thinking things like, no, it can't be true. Somebody must have gone, got it wrong. It can't have happened. And we literally feel assaulted, hit by the devastating reality of it all. And it's a struggle to absorb it, especially when we first hear the death has come. Very often, our response is numbness. And so we find ourselves just sitting and staring at the wall as the hours go by, or we lose all track of time. And this feeling can happen over and over again. It comes and it goes. People talk about going to sleep at night and then walking, waking up in the morning, feeling happy, looking ahead to the new day, and then suddenly the memory of the loss comes flooding back and they feel the assault of it all, all over again. And alongside this numbness, denial is very much part of our initial responses and it recycles again and again as we grieve. Some people, when faced with loss, respond completely differently. Have a look at verse 22. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Some of us do all we can to try and immediately get back, return to our normal routine in the hope that it will all seem like nothing has changed. Others accept the loss intellectually and show no real emotional response. However we respond, honestly, denial can feel pretty good. It's not always bad because denial is one of the ways that we adjust and adapt our thinking to our loss little by little so that it doesn't overwhelm us completely. The reality is, most of the time, we can only accept loss in little bits. And denial is one of those ways that keeps us sane. Another thing is it's important to say about grief is that grieving is a whole person process. It's just not a mind, it's not just a mind or an emotion thing. Our body is involved in grieving. In his book, The Body Keeps the Score, psychiatrist and writer Bessel van der Kolk explores the ways in which trauma can literally reshape both the body and the brain, impacting sufferers' capacities for things like pleasure, engagement, self-control, and trust. He writes this. We have learned that trauma is not just an event that took place some time in the past. It is also the imprint left by that experience on mind, brain, and body. The imprint has ongoing consequences of for how the human organism manages to survive in the present. Trauma results in a fundamental reorganization of the way the mind and the brain manage perceptions. It changes not only how we think and what we think about, but also our very capacity to think. Have a look at verse 33. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Our bodies respond 
with inconsolable sobs, but grief can also bring on chest pains and that feeling like you can't breathe, as if you're suffocating. Or it can cause our hearts to race so that we feel like we're having a heart attack. It's not unusual to experience an empty feeling in the pit of our stomach or sweaty palms and a whole host of other physical responses. Our sleeping and eating patterns are usually disrupted, again demonstrating the extent to which our bodies are involved in the grieving process along with our mind and emotions. We experience a whole range of emotions. Fear and anxiety are commonplace, as is anger. Anger is completely natural emotion and a very normal following a death. Death is always so cruel and unfair, especially when we feel someone has died before their time or we had plans for a future together. It's also really normal to feel anger towards the person who's died or anger at ourselves for the things we did or didn't do before their death. Or our anger can be directed at God. Maybe it's not reading too much into the text to pick up something of anger from both Mary and Martha, who both say the same thing to Jesus, repeated in verses 21 and 32. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When we're faced with uh, any kind of loss, we can so easily feel betrayed by God and forsaken by him. As we ask ourselves whether we can trust the sovereign one who we perceive as being ultimately responsible for our loss, he could have stopped it and yet he didn't. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Even some of those around Martha and Mary who are trying to comfort them in their grief say in verse 37, but some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Anger is yet another face of grief you see, death makes us feel very small, very vulnerable, and very insecure. Loss of any kind brings us face to face with our own mortality and our utter lack of control in this world. It leaves us, on the, on the one hand, having to face our dependency on God whilst at the same time trying to reconcile ourselves to the fact that God allowed the loss to occur in the first place. It's a really difficult, ambivalent place to be spiritually. Grief always, always challenges our faith. It's not wrong, but it does. 
And I think part of the reason for this is because no matter how much we learn to trust God in this world, to some degree we trust God not so much because we trust in God, but because we trust in what God has given. And what I mean by that is that it's a lot easier to trust that God is good when things in our lives remain safe and secure. But when those things are taken away, maybe through death of some kind, the very character and nature of God can be thrown into question. And then there are those feelings of hopelessness and despair. In verse 20, we see that Martha goes out to meet Jesus, but Mary stayed at home. Now, we don't know why she stayed at home, but maybe Mary was just so desolate, so overwhelmed by the sense of loss that she couldn't even bring herself to leave the house. Somewhere along our journey with grief, as the initial shock of it all wears off and the denial loses its power to numb us, a sense of hopelessness and despair can settle in. And this is a really important part of the journey to understand and appreciate, especially for us as Christians. As Christians, we often uncomfortably with feelings like hopelessness and despair. And instead, we want to run in quickly and fix everything with some Bible verse to make it all go away. But hopelessness and despair are all essential elements of grieving. As we begin to realize that the loss is in fact real, that our loved one has died, and that there's nothing we can do about it. It can often feel like our whole future has gone with them. It's as if the sorrow and the sadness we feel swallows up everything else and we can no longer see anything good. This is the darkest place of our journey with grief. This is the valley of the shadow of death from Psalm 23 that we must walk through and that we think will never end. It is the depths, it is the pit, it is the abyss that the psalmist write about. And it can so easily look to those of us who are grieving that there is no light on the horizon, there is no hope and there is no bright tomorrow. However, the barrenness and the emptiness and darkness of this part of our journey with grief has with it the seeds of surrender and acceptance to the awful truth. It is in the midst of hopelessness and the emptiness that somehow and very, very slowly it begins to dawn on us that we are still among the living. Yes, there has been a death, but it was not ours. We are still here. We are not the same. The pain of our loss has left a scar, a deep wound that still hurts. But very, very slowly and very, very tentatively, sometimes without us even knowing it, something begins to shift. And instead of looking down and in and back, we tentatively begin to look up 
and out and ahead. And ever so slowly, we begin to process of reconnect, re reconnecting to life. The loss still very much with us, very much now a part of who we are, but no longer overwhelms us. And we begin to re-enter life changed. And we begin to re-enter life more humble because we are now far more aware of our frailty and our finiteness and our mortality and our lack of control. We are now far more aware of the fleeting nature of things and that all things here are temporal and that all things will ultimately either leave us or be left by us. But we also come very, very slowly, perhaps to see that the very God we thought who had abandoned us has in some fact come to dwell with us. And that even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will not fear, I will not fear for you or are, for you are with me. And that in and through the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, our final enemy, death, who is assault has flattened us, has been destroyed forever. In verse 25, Jesus speaks these famous words over Martha. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Do we believe that even in the depths of our despair, in the face of terrible, terrible loss, that God is sovereign and that God is good. And so in the strangest of ways, our encounters with death, our encounter with grief, are but a small foretaste of the resurrection. And now again, if you don't hear anything else today, Please hear that everybody's experience of grief is unique. No two people go through the grieving process in the same way or at the same pace. Our response to grief isn't linear, with us working our way through step one and on to steps two, three, and four. Many of the things will go through cycle, around again and again, and even can occur simultaneously. One of the most helpful ways I heard someone describing our responses to grief many years ago was in thinking of grief like orbiting planets. And at any given moment, one of the planets, be anger, denial, bargaining, or the emotions of grief, sadness, shock, pain, relief, whatever comes into view, and then weeks later, days later, sometimes minutes later, it disappears again, only to reappear at some point in the future. But unlike orbiting planets, what tends to happen as we journey through grief is that the lengths of this 
these orbits start to get longer. And the emotion and the pain of it all disappears from view for longer and longer periods of time. Never quite going away, but not perhaps quite as frequent as they were at the start. All the aspects of grief are one piece of an overarching task. And that is the task of learning to let go of that which has already gone. Learning to live without what once was. Learning to wear something that doesn't feel like it fits. When we lose someone we love, or we lose something of ourselves due to a chronic illness, or trauma shatters our world. We try to find ways to keep doing life just as we did before. But we keep turning around and they're not there. And life doesn't feel the same. And change and disruption are always hitting us in the face. We keep looking for the one we've lost. And we expect them at every turn. Or we expect our bodies to function the same way they used to. And we keep crashing into their limitations. As we grieve, we are faced with learning how to live with the absence that death has brought. And we bump into it all over again and again as we go through our days. Any loss, any bereavement in a crisis time is a life. And the word for crisis is part means a separating. Crisis means there was a before and there will be an after. It's a point we look back on and say, well, before such and such happened, this, but after it happened, that. Before a death and after. Before a rape and after. Before a job loss and after. Life was one way and is now forever changed. Life is now another way. And the invitation that is to all of us, and the invitation that I believe the Spirit of God extends to us in the aftermath of death is to join with Jesus, who was himself a man of sorrows. The one who says, as it says in verse 35, wept over the death of his friend. The invitation from the Spirit of God is perhaps to journey with grief and to allow God's Spirit to comfort all who mourn and to give us beauty for ashes and the oil of joy instead of mourning and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. As we look to his salvation through his death on the cross, as we look to his redemption through the resurrection, which brings hope.